Welcome to the Director's Chair, a Lowy Institute podcast. My name is Michael Forleylove and I'm the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute. On the Director's Chair, I sit down with political leaders, policymakers and commentators in order to understand what's happening in the world. For the final episode of the Director's Chair for the year, I want to put 2020 behind us and focus on the year ahead. As Donald Trump recedes into the past, he will shortly be replaced by President-elect Joe Biden. And to tell us about Mr. Biden, I'm delighted to welcome his biographer, the award-winning journalist and author Evan Osnos, as my guest. Evan is one of America's best reporters. From 2005 to 2013, he was a China correspondent, first for the Chicago Tribune and then for the New Yorker. In 2013, he moved to Washington to cover national politics and foreign affairs for The New Yorker as a staff writer. And during this time, he wrote two major profiles of Joe Biden, interviewed Mark Zuckerberg and visited North Korea during the height of the nuclear crisis. In 2014, he published a book on China, Age of Ambition, which won the National Book Award. And he's just published a highly readable and revealing biography of the president-elect with the title, Joe Biden, American Dreamer. Evan Osnos, thank you for joining me on the director's chair. My pleasure, Michael. Thanks for the invitation. All right, Evan, your family's always been involved in public affairs. Your dad, Peter Osnos, was a longtime correspondent and then editor at the Washington Post. Your grandfather was a US ambassador. Were politics and public life a big part of your life when you were growing up? Did you always know you wanted to be a journalist? Well, I would separate the two questions. I think certainly public life and public affairs and the ideas uh, associated with it were, that was the, that was the oxygen. I mean, that was the water that we swam in and the dinner table conversation tended to be about things that were outside of the house. I mean, I was born while my folks were living in Moscow. My dad was the Moscow correspondent. They went to London to have me, but we, I grew up largely overseas. So the idea of then becoming a foreign correspondent was almost uh, nobody paid much attention when I said I'm going off to Iraq <laughs> to, uh, to write about the Middle East and China and so on. All right. You and I met in Beijing probably a decade ago, and you and your wife, Sarah Beth, were living in a courtyard house in a hutong, as I remember it, while you reported on China. And out of that reporting tour, you published a book called Age of Ambition. How much has China's ambition changed since you published that book in 2014? How would you update it if you were publishing a second edition today? Yeah, it's changed dramatically. I mean, interestingly, when I was writing Age of Ambition, it was a reference to this duality that you had the individual ambitions of 1.4 billion people all sort of jockeying and elbowing to get ahead. And then you had this clear national ambition that was coming into focus. And what I was struck by at the time was the tension between the two. Because in some cases, the individual ambitions to say what you want to say or to build a business as you want to build it, those were a check in some ways Mm -hmm. on the government's ability to operate its full authoritarian spectrum of power. And what's changed since then, and I think where I was wrong, what I would say, where I would revise what Mm -hmm. I was doing if I was writing it again today, would be that the power of the authoritarian ambition was more durable and uh, was frankly more powerful and, and, and more able to steamroll over those individual ambitions than, than I would have expected. And, and to give you just one example, mm. you know, at the time, the culture of the internet with that sort of yeasty sense of everywhere rising up all the time, challenging the leadership, mm. 
that was beaten back in the years since then quite powerfully to the point that the internet today does not provide that sort of political challenge to the leadership in Beijing that it appeared to, mm-hmm. to represent a decade ago. And now it seems we're living in the age of, of Xi Jinping's ambition, if you like, and we might, we'll come back to that later. But, but first of all, let me turn to President-elect Biden and congratulations on this terrific book. It's intelligent, it's brisk, it's readable, it's insightful, it's fair, and it's funny, actually, at different moments. Let me start with Biden's ill-fated 1988 presidential campaign. In your book, you say his Senate reputation at that time was of a pompous blowhard. Now, a lot of water has passed under the bridge since then. How much has Biden changed as a person? Quite a bit. In fact, I think one of the things that is most interesting about him as a character, as a figure, as an Mm. object of, of sort of literary attention is the fact that he has changed in stark ways. I mean, what was interesting at the end of his Senate career after 36 years as a senator was that all of his experiences had encouraged him to be essentially a fully baked product. You don't have to evolve much as a United States senator. (laughs) Uh, When you're in charge of a committee, you've got people running every direction. And you don't really, frankly, have to pay that much attention to what you say because it just gets kind of washed away in Mm. the ambient wind of everyone around you. And all of a sudden, he finds himself in the White House with this partner, this boss, Barack Obama, who was, after all, incredibly disciplined Mm. about the things he said and the ideas he expressed, thinking through what he was trying to accomplish, reading his briefing books, I mean, until the wee hours of the morning, these Mm. kinds of things. And it actually changed Biden. I mean, it was interestingly, somebody who worked with them in the White House relayed a story to me that... Biden had come into the job saying to others, frankly, I think I should have had this job of Mm. being president. He'd run after all. He hadn't won. But it was after a few months of watching Obama, particularly watching Obama on the financial crisis Mm -hmm. and getting up to speed on this complex thing that he realized actually the best man won. Mm. And he said to people, look, I I realize now that the best man won this race and I'm just honored to be able to serve him. Mm. So that changed a bit. And that was actually the beginning of a change that continues further. And we can talk about it, but there has been a gradual, what I could only describe as a kind of humbling of Joe Biden over the course of the last 12 years, not entirely uh, by events of his own choosing. And some of them have been very painful events. How effective a vice president do you think he was? Vice presidents, as a rule, are generally unhappy and ineffective. It is not a sought after position mm-hmm. by any measure. And he came in aware of that and was quite wary of that. In fact, he didn't want the job initially said, thanks, but no thanks. They had to come back and ask him a second time. Uh, we all remember it was Harry Truman, I think, who said that it's a job not worth a bucket of warm spit. And I'm being polite in my rendering of that, of that reflection. So, um, so you, you believe he was inclined, really believe he was inclined not to take the job? I do, actually. Uh, The reason being that I think he was quite comfortable in the United States Senate. I mean, he was the only job he'd ever had as an adult, in effect. As he said to his wife at the time, you know, I don't think I can have a boss. I haven't had a boss before. To which Mm -hmm. she said, uh, and anybody who has a spouse will recognize this kind of interchange, (laughs) her advice to him was grow up uh, and take the job. And of course he did. 
Now, I think he was effective in the brief that was given to him. And his brief was quite clear. His brief was to help a younger president who had very little experience on foreign affairs make his way around the world. Mm. And Biden did, as, as he often said, he, he would go to the places that, that Barack Obama didn't want to go, uh, which included Capitol Hill and Ukraine and a mm. bunch of other mm. places around the planet. And he did one other thing, which is that he served in some cases as a kind of foil in these internal debates mm. when this was by design. Biden would play the role sometimes of a more dovish figure than he actually believed on national security. Mm. Uh, and this was at Obama's direction. I spoke to President Obama a couple of times in the preparation of this book. And he said, look, I asked Biden to open up some space for me in the room, meaning sometimes I needed you to stake out a position that was not, that was actually in disagreement with the generals, in disagreement with the civilian leadership of the Pentagon. Um, but I needed to hear that. And I thought everybody at the table needed to hear that. So on those measures, he was a success. All right. In 2016, at the end of the Obama administration, after much consideration, Biden decided he wouldn't run for president as we know, Hillary Clinton won the nomination. She was defeated by Donald Trump. In 2020, Joe Biden threw his hat in the ring. And during the early months, it really looked like he wasn't going to last the distance. And then in March of this year, everything changed. And you write that in three days, Biden went from the edge of oblivion to victory. So tell us about that. And what does it tell us about the role of chance, if you like, in, in US politics? Yeah, it's, it is a kind of a fascinating interregnum, this little tiny moment between being a total failure and mm. being a total success. I mean, there's a detail I did not include in the book, but is in fact quite a telling moment, which is that his campaign was so close to the oblivion mm. that Anita Dunn, one of the senior leaders of the campaign, had the unpleasant task of calling Biden and telling him, sir, you need to keep a little bit of cash in the in the account here because we may be done in a week and you need to have enough money to pay severance for mm. people uh, mm. when we when we wound this thing down. And I, I asked her, I said, actually, how did he respond to that? Because, you know, did he rage against the heavens? What did he do? And she said, no, actually, you know, he said to me, I have lost bigger things than this mm. in my life. So there's an element of, and I think that somewhat of that kind of calm that you would not have seen from Joe Biden 20 years ago. Mm much less 30 years ago, mm. is an element that came through at a moment when Americans were looking for a more reassuring presence. Mm. But I, I think, to, you know, to your question, what changed and what turned out to be decisive, the reason why he won this race, it's not that complicated. It's older black voters in South Carolina. I think you're absolutely right in describing an element of chance. There's a strange chemistry mm. to the American politics that is so because of the sort of sheer complexity of the overlapping elements of geography, generation, age, race, income, it could have very well broken the other way. And Joe Biden would now be enjoying his second retirement. But instead, and I think we can talk about it, but for reasons that were quite distinct, older African-American voters really rescued his campaign. They believed that he was going to protect them mm. in fundamental ways and they and they they delivered the presidency to him. All right. Well, let's let's move on to the character of that presidency as you think it might uh, look. Let me ask to begin with: Do you think the Biden administration will be radical or moderate? So, on the one hand, Mr. Biden says he wants to be the most progressive president since FDR, and and there's lots of 
good stuff in your book about the campaign reaching out to the left and all that sort of stuff. On the other hand, his whole political shtick, his whole life has been to reach across the aisle and make a deal with Republicans. So will he be Rooseveltian or Biden-esque? He'll be Biden-esque. I mean, the, the, the truth is that he is at his core a moderate political figure. His, it's, it's really, it's a philosophy, not mm. a strategy. I mm. mean, actually it was Jim Clyburn, the congressman from South Carolina, the one who really sort of helped him win, who articulated for me something that I think has become a, a guiding uh, image for how to understand Biden's conception of politics, which is, as Clyburn said to me, look, a lot of my younger activist friends think that I'm too much of a centrist, but I always say to them, American politics may swing from one extreme to the other, mm. but it always passes through the center. Mm. And that image. means it spends twice as much time at the center as it does at either extreme. Mm. And I think Joe Biden would endorse that image uh, very much so. So look, I think when he says he wants to be the most progressive figure since Roosevelt, that is really uh, more of a, of a comment on the scale of the challenge that the United States is facing right mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. than it is on the policy details of whether or not he's going to erect a system of such dramatic change that it would be comparable to the New Deal. I think we need to think of it really as a comment on his belief that this is akin to the Great Depression and World War II and that the United States is at risk of failure on that same scale. All right. Well, the biggest element of that challenge is COVID. How well is he equipped to deal with the pandemic? How successful do you think his administration will be? It is a terrifying problem, uh, to be perfectly blunt, Michael. I mean, it is so grave, even with the vaccine becoming available, that we have a population that is predisposed to be wary of taking a vaccine. Mm -hmm. I mean, this gets to... Mm -hmm what Barack Obama described in his new book as the epistemological problem facing the United States. I mean, it is that serious that we have substantial parts of the population who no longer believe mm. the basics of fact and science. And that is a problem. It's not a permanent problem. There is a glimmer of optimism there, but it is a, it is a serious problem at the moment that is not going to mend itself overnight. So it's not just the technical problem of getting the vaccine into the right hands and, and getting uh, businesses uh, up off the ground after this terrible uh, setback. It is really a, a problem of trying to fashion a meaningful coherence, a moral vision that, that people on a large basis will buy into. And right now you have an outgoing president who is doing everything in his power to try to undermine the legitimacy of the Biden administration. Mm. That's a problem we haven't faced in this country, and it poses a, a really serious challenge for him. How will the Secret Service protect Joe Biden from the virus? After all, he's 78 years old. Now, President Trump was notoriously lax in terms of protecting himself and the White House. Other world leaders are taking a different approach. You may have seen a story in the New York Times this week that, for example, that to get within breathing space of President Putin of Russia, you need to quarantine for two weeks and then you need to pass through a disinfecting tunnel that sprays a fine mist of antiseptics. Now, have you heard anything on your reporting rounds about how, I mean, obviously, I mean, we hear talk that, for example, the inauguration may not have crowds and that sort of stuff, but on a day-to-day -day working basis, how will they manage this to protect the president from COVID? 
Yeah, I'm thinking of getting the Putin system installed in my own home, as a matter of fact. But no, I, you know, look, I actually am struck by the fact having been with Biden during the peak of the epidemic in July, I went to see him at his house. And it was at that moment, I mean, this was the the virus was was rampaging across the country. And it was not a casual decision either to go see him or the circumstances under which it was possible. I mean, if I had not had an existing relationship with him, we wouldn't have done this. Yeah. Uh, they wouldn't have. They wouldn't have done it. He was not seeing anybody really very often. I mean, his staff said to me, "I think you may find him quite talkative when you see him because he's <laughs> just sort of desperate for human contact." And I was wearing an N95 mask. He was wearing an N95 mask, and we sat on opposite sides of a vast living room. Yeah. And there was no elbow bump. There was none of that. Yeah. That was an indication of how seriously they're taking it. Look, it, I don't want to overstate the case here. But it is a fact that the Biden orbit, the people around him have not been affected by the virus Mm. in the way that the Trump world has. Mm. And that is a reflection of the underlying seriousness with which they take it. I mean, they are, you know, there are people in the Biden campaign who I've been talking to every couple of days for months, and we have never met face to face because it's not safe. So I don't expect that just because, in fact, just because Biden is going to be in the presidency, that he's going to be suddenly at great risk of exposure. I don't assume that at all. In fact, I think that when you treat it the way he's treating it, which is as a matter of grave physical concern, he believes very seriously that the the imagery that the president projects is essential. And you know, they probably could have an inauguration with some measure of a crowd. But part of the reason for not doing that is to send the message from the top that we are taking this as seriously as you should. Let me ask you about the Biden team. First, what kind of vice president will Kamala Harris be? Based on your reporting, what is the relationship like between Biden and Harris? And do you foresee any tensions between the two of them or their staffs as she starts to think about her own political future over the next few years? Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic because vice presidents and presidents are very often this somewhat last minute arrangement. You know, they are often made for very expedient political reasons. And this was different partly because Biden had been vice president. He has a higher degree of regard for the job Mm -hmm. than some previous presidents, incoming presidents have. So he is inclined to make it a real gig. Like it is not going to be ribbon cutting Mm -hmm. of the kind that drove people like Nelson Rockefeller crazy. He believes that you are stronger as a duo. He doesn't need Kamala Harris to be going out into the world doing foreign affairs for him. But what he does need, and this is very serious, is he needs somebody to be an envoy to the rest of the United States because he's very aware that he is a white man in his eighth decade, more conservative than a lot of Democrats are. And he sees Kamala Harris as a bridge to the future in some ways. Now, I think the key thing for her to be mindful of is that the oldest psychodrama in Washington Mm -hmm. is a vice president running a crypto campaign from the West Wing in preparation for the moment of what they regard as the inevitable ascension. Mm. And it drives presidents nuts. Especially presidents who care a lot about respect. Very much so. And and, and you're absolutely right to draw attention to that. I mean, Biden, if you did a word search on Biden's published corpus, you would probably find that the word respect comes up over and over again. The delivery and receipt of respect Mm. is, is really essential to his vision of politics and of diplomacy. 
And if he begins to feel that she is in some ways weakening the institution by beginning to run for president, that will hurt her more than help her. So I think that, the you know, my guess is I'm certainly not original in coming to this conclusion. I think people around her are are aware of the fact that certainly for, for the first two years, what they need to be doing is reinforcing the sense that she is there to help President Biden succeed. All right. Well, there'll be a lot of people helping President Biden. He has already announced a number of nominees for key positions within his administration, including Jake Sullivan, Tony Blinken, Susan Rice, Pete Buttigieg and Lloyd Austin. What do you make of the early appointments? As a practical matter, the first 14 appointments he made, half of them were women and uh, more than half of them represented minorities of one kind or another. So that is an effort to try to represent the diversity of the country. It doesn't mean it's enough. I mean, he is getting pressure from the left to install younger people of color uh, into leadership positions. And I think that generational element is a piece of this. He has gotten some criticism from some who feel that, you know, the average age of his appointees before Pete Buttigieg was 63. So, you know, it was not exactly a young crowd. His answer to that is, look, I'm balancing a lot of equities here. I want to make this racially diverse. I want to get some degree of ideological diversity. I want to get experience into the mix. And I think in the end, he's tilting a little bit towards experience. There's a lot of people in that crowd who have been in the Obama administration or the Clinton administration. His view is this is an extraordinary moment. It's an emergency for the country. We need to be able, and we're going to have an outgoing president who is not participating in a meaningful way in the transition. And we're going to need people who can walk in there on day one and begin pulling the levers of power to protect people, to Mm. keep them safe from a virus and from a serious national security picture. And there will be opportunities for a younger generation, but we should not be looking for that from the highest ranks of American power. And I, I, frankly, I'm encouraged by that vision. I think it's the, I think it's a reasonable balance of, of all of the various constituencies he has to satisfy. Is Secretary for Transportation a good move for Pete Buttigieg? I mean, I think there were a lot of jobs that he was considering that were conceivable for him. Mm-hmm. And he is, let's be clear, he's an enormous political talent. And there's a wonderful and completely overlooked detail, interestingly enough, that when my, when my editor at The New Yorker, David Remnick, went to interview Barack Obama on the day after the 2016 election, after Donald mm-hmm. Trump has just won, everybody's in despair. And Remnick asked Obama, he said, you know, what gives you hope about the future of the Democratic Party? And Obama said, well, you know, there's this young guy who's the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, which, mm. I mean, is kind of amazing mm. uh, as, a, as, a, as a reflection of Obama's sense of the mm. political skill set out there. Mm. And we're going to be hearing from, you know, I'll, I'll quote Joe Biden on this subject back in the spring when Buttigieg endorsed Biden. Biden said, I, I'm telling you, folks, you're going to be hearing from Pete Buttigieg in the future a lot more than you're going to be hearing from Joe Biden. Mm. So I think being Secretary of Transportation is a terrific way to enter a cabinet. One more question on the team. What do you make of Susan Rice's appointment as head of the Domestic Policy Council? She's had this roller coaster ride of late, hasn't she? She roared into contention for Biden's running mate, which was highly unusual given that she's never been elected dog catcher as far as I know. Then she was a candidate for Secretary of State, or at least she was spoken of for that. She missed out on those. 
And now she's taken a domestic policy position, which seems a bit odd because she's never worked in domestic policy. On the other hand, she's a force. She's a force. So what, what based on your reporting, what's behind that appointment and how and what, what kind of a role do you think she'll play in the administration? She made a choice here that is quite telling about the future of her political prospects. I mean, as you say, she had never held, held elected office. But interestingly, you know, I was doing an event with her a couple of years ago, right around the time she was out of the government, obviously, and it wasn't clear what she was interested in doing in the future. And the day before I sat down to interview her uh, in New York, she began to talk about the idea of running for the Senate from the state mm-hmm. of Maine, mm-hmm. which is where her family has had longstanding ties. So you know, she's a person with broader ambitions than what we sometimes assume simply because most of her career has been in foreign affairs. She has an interest in the domestic side. And I think that you know the logic of this from the Biden administration's perspective is they are pretty emphatic about their belief that foreign affairs and domestic affairs should not be as bifurcated as they have been. That when he talks about how to take on China, for instance, when he says that the answer lies as much in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and actually rebuilding uh, a, a sort of new generation of, of American economic power, that is a, a more credible case from a foreign policy perspective than a kind of improvisational set of tariffs and chest thumping that we saw from the Trumps. So, you know, there's a case to be made that having somebody who thinks about domestic policy with an eye on our international standing is probably an advantage. All right. Speaking of Mr. Trump, how will President Biden manage former President Trump? For example, Will he allow the investigations of Mr. Trump and his family and his advisors for allegedly illegal behavior while in office? Is he likely to convene a COVID-19 commission, for example, to look into the mismanagement of the pandemic akin perhaps to the 9-11 commission? Or does he take the high road that Obama took by sort of looking to the future rather than the past? He is aware, I think, of the fact that Obama's legacy in choosing to not do things like investigate the origins of the financial crisis and prosecute uh, people to the degree he might have ultimately actually undermined some of the public confidence in the political process and in government because it created this sense of not only moral hazard on an individual basis that people could go about doing those kinds of activities again, but also it really did it, it in some ways reified this feeling of this system in which some people were punished harshly and other people, if they had enough power, could get away with it. Biden is also, on the other hand, acutely aware of the fact that he believes that one of Donald Trump's mistakes, crimes really, was politicizing the judiciary here and politicizing the power of prosecution, the, you know, Mm -hmm. walking around saying lock him or her up all the time. Biden doesn't want to get involved in that. So he's pretty emphatic about that. And I think that's that I know that's deeply felt. He also knows that the prosecutors will do their work. Uh, Right now, uh, Donald Trump is under investigation in at least two jurisdictions in Manhattan and in the state of New York, maybe more. There are indications that it may, in fact, uh, there may be other investigations. And that process is going to have its own throw weight and it's not going to need the involvement of the president of the United States. I wouldn't be surprised, though, to see a commission created to study the origins of the failures to handle the COVID epidemic. And that's not a political gesture. That's a matter of us 
beginning uh, the very serious work of reckoning with our own failure on that mm-hmm. subject. During the campaign, Evan, Joe Biden presented himself as somewhat of a transitional figure. Do you think, therefore, it is conceivable, likely, that he may choose not to run for a second term? Or do you think the sort of inevitable uh, human ambitions that all presidents have and his desire for respect would mean that, assuming he's healthy and all that sort of stuff, that he would want to run again in four years' time? Honestly, he has not made a decision. I mean, that is a, I know that for a fact. That's a, that's a true thing. And now there is a there is an element of this that it would be political malpractice for him to say right now, I'm only going to serve one term because sure, it might satisfy a few people who uh, only want him to get the US out of the abyss of the Trump years. But the reality is it would also make him a lame duck Mm -hmm. at that moment. And all we would be doing is spending the next four years talking about whether it was Kamala Harris or Pete Buttigieg or somebody else who was going to be the heir apparent. So his political instincts tell him no. I've talked to him over the years about how he thinks about age and retirement. And, you know, in some ways, the fact that he was such a young man when he made it to success, he was 29 years old when he got to the Senate, too young, in fact, to even take his seat for a few months, had to wait until he aged into it, (laughs) that that made a big imprint on him. And he has a kind of, you know, he's a little bit of a young man trapped in amber, even though he is now, after all, 48 years older than he was when he started. Now, that means that he is both vigorous in a way that you might not naturally see from far away, but he is also, you know, it will be up to the people around him if he begins to lose a step to say to him, the time is now. And if you spend time in the Biden orbit, one of the things you discover is he has this very strong set of women especially, mm-hmm. who are very close to him. Obviously, his wife, Jill Biden, and his sister, Val Owens, uh, who has been, you know, she's been a part of his politics from the very beginning. She was his first campaign manager. Mm-hmm. If there comes a point at which Biden is not doing himself any favors by staying in politics, he's going to hear about it first at the dinner table. All right. Let me turn to Biden's foreign policy. First of all, in broad terms, how do you think it will be similar to or different from President Obama's? Well, he comes to it with a somewhat of a similar moment that the United States, when the Obama administration began, was climbing out of the war in Iraq. Uh, It was beginning this process, after all, with the financial crisis raging, of trying to explain to the rest of the world what had just happened over the course of the last few years in American politics, and to try to restore some of our standing and our credibility. It was not quite the same in the sense that, you know, in 2008, the rest of the world wasn't looking around and saying, has the United States given up on democracy? And there is a, you know, there has been moments over the last four years that have really done a lot of damage to America's standing as an agent of democracy in the world. You know, the idea that the U.S. president is the leader of the free world has been a contested idea of late. Mm -hmm. And I think Biden will find himself needing and and feeling, I know for a fact, he feels personally compelled to go out and use this experience that he has in foreign affairs and begin to make a case Mm -hmm. around the world. Curiously, he faces some of the same instincts, which is that, you know, every president for the last 25 years has come into office saying they're going to reduce America's role in the Middle East. And it, it proves to be exceedingly difficult to do. It is a different world, though, that he's coming into now. He has one thing that the Trump administration will be able to, will be a part of its legacy in a positive way, 
is the degree to which it has found some peaceful coexistence between some Arab states and Israel. Mm. Now, of course, they also uh, have done damage to the idea of a one-state solution. We'll, we'll have to see what happens in the future when it comes to Biden's willingness to deal with the Middle East. But his instincts, unlike the Obama administration's instincts, are to be much tougher on China. And I think China is the area where you're going to see the greatest difference, perhaps, in how uh, he envisions the future of the United States and its allies and opponents. He acknowledges, I mean, he has to me and to others, that he held on too long to the idea of the United States being a cooperative partner with China and that that would help both sides. And he recognizes this is a fundamentally competitive dynamic. Mm -hmm. I think where he departs from the Trump administration is that he does not believe that it needs to be confrontational and that he thinks that it's a mistake for us to slip into some of the old comfortable rhythms of the Cold War. And that uh, just because we won that one means that we're going to be able to pull those books off the shelf and reenact some of it. He thinks that would be a mistake. Now, Obama was not an interventionist, and Biden was very much on the non-interventionist wing or the dovish side, as you put it earlier, of the Obama administration. What does that mean for how America conducts itself under President Biden? Will he be willing to use force in order to project power, or will he continue to be highly skeptical of the recommendations he gets from his generals? Well, he has two formative experiences that I think will define him. One is he takes some pride in having been somebody who did push back on the generals. Mm -hmm. I mean, he has made a, a forceful case. In fact, one of the moments that I've seen him most animated in conversation is when he was talking about his belief that he thought that the muscle, that generals tried to muscle Democratic presidents. Mm -hmm. uh, and he And he was kind of in his mind, he was wise to that game and didn't, didn't want to have it happen. But there's another moment that I think, Michael, we don't acknowledge enough that is important, which is that Biden looks back with pride on the fact that in the 1990s, he was one of the strongest advocates in the Congress for the intervention in the war in the Balkans, for supporting a NATO bombing campaign to protect civilians. He took that as a real point of personal pride, sometimes says it's the thing that he's proudest of in his Senate career. And so that is a, that's a data point that is not immaterial. And, you know, it doesn't mean that it's a, a one size fits all because later he argued against the U.S. involvement in Libya. But he has in his conception of American power, the belief that there is an exceptional responsibility that the United States has by virtue of its strength and its size and its values to intervene when necessary to protect vulnerable people. Let me ask you about the global challenge of climate change. Jake Sullivan said on this podcast that a President Biden would expect allies, not just adversaries, but allies to step up and show real ambition on climate change. Kurt Campbell told me that Biden has made climate change the watchword of his administration. Obviously, he's put a former presidential nominee, former Secretary of State in the role as climate change envoy in John Kerry. How hard will the administration be pushing other countries, including allies like Australia, on climate change? I think you can expect that it's a real commitment. I mean, this is not uh, this is not the role that climate change has played in some previous presidencies, in which it was a kind of ritual station of the cross that people would visit, but then not put any real political or diplomatic muscle behind. 
he recognizes that this is not only a foreign policy issue, this is a domestic policy issue, that the politics on, on climate change have moved in this country quite substantially. It's taken a while for the Republican Party to catch up with it. But if you look at polls today, Democrats and Republicans will tell you that they think that on roughly you know, two thirds of Americans will say that they believe we should be doing more on climate change. And Biden believes that you can frame it as a centrist proposition where you talk about green jobs and you talk about generating economic growth out of this rather than a sort of old choice between economics and the environment. This is not an, this is not going to be an optional part of the program. This is going to be a significant part of how the United States presents itself and begins to try to rebuild the ground that it lost under the Trump administration when it really fell out of the ranks of leadership in the world when it came to shared problems and public goods. All right, Evan, two final questions. First of all, you write in your book that, and I quote, Biden had an inexhaustible appetite for the connect, the rope line, the hand cupped around the back of the head, the eye contact with a skeptic in the crowd. Let me ask you about this. I have my own little Biden story in this regard because a few years ago, we hosted the then vice president in Sydney. And once he'd finished speaking, I mentioned to him that my mum was in the crowd and I asked if he wouldn't mind giving her a wave. And Biden said, give her a wave, let's go say hi. And he waded into the crowd, ignoring three former Australian prime ministers who were waiting for their handshake, fixed on my mother, my unsuspecting mother, opened his arms wide and said, mom, and embraced her. And then later he sent out a secret service agent to bring her backstage so the three of us could have a conversation. Now, I'm aware that though this felt remarkable to my mum and to me, it probably happens once a day in Biden world, (laughs) at least before COVID. And of course, we know that his touchiness got him into trouble during the campaign. But Evan, I want to know what is behind this? Why does he do it? Why does he feel the need to connect in this way? What does it give him? That's a really interesting question, Michael, and I think it, it, it captures something at the very core of who he is, which is that to draw it as a comparison with Obama, think how different that is than the way that mm. President Obama is, you know, who is, after all, one of the most charismatic professional politicians of our, of our lifetimes, clearly, somebody who had this extraordinary rhetorical power you know, from the mountaintop, could really sort of talk to people across cultures and across the United States. And Biden has a very, very different form of politics. It's humid. It's up close. Mm. It's tactile, is the word John Kerry used when he was describing it to me. Mm. Uh, And what I found great is Kerry knows his own limitations. Mm. You know, Kerry is the kind of politician who greets you with a a vigorous but outthrust hand. Mm. Uh, It is... And, and Barack Obama has a kind of, you know, he is fundamentally somebody who is more introverted. At the end of a day of political activity, he wants to go back to his room and read. And at the end of a long day of political activity, Biden wants to go back to his room and talk with the person who's delivering the hamburger. I mean, that's the thing that I think is, is kind of baked into who he is. And this goes back to his just who he is as a human being at his very basic level. I think if you wanted to get a tiny bit psychoanalytical about it, you would say that he began his life with an inability to speak. Mm. I mean, the stutter is a profound imprint on him. I mean, Mm. he said to me at one point, you know, you don't know what it's like to not be able to speak. Mm. And when he mastered that and sort of broke the back of it as a teenager, he came out of it with this almost kind of elevated 
appetite for talking to people. And over the years, like all of us, you become a little bit more of an extreme of whatever you were as a young person. And in mm. his mind, you know, he has that capacity to make people uh, smile a little bit. And he can sometimes overdo it a touch, I think. All right. Finally, you, you say in your book that Joe Biden's life has been marked by both moments of great fortune and great misfortune. So when you think back on this, this incredible life, do you think Joe Biden is the luckiest man in the world or the unluckiest? In the end, he would say that he's the luckiest. Mm. And, you know, Michael, to be honest about this, I started writing about Joe Biden before I had kids. And I understood intellectually what it meant to lose a child. Mm -hmm. I could write about it, but I didn't honestly understand it in any real way. And I come to this now at a very different point. I now have two kids. Mm -hmm. And to see the way that he did not get destroyed by these moments in his life that are tragedies beyond reckoning, mm -hmm. losing two of his children, the thing mm -hmm. you hope never to happen in your life. Mm -hmm. The fact that he could then claw his way back through mistakes, through unbelievable trials is a fact of extraordinary fortune and will. Mm. And he would be the one uh, to acknowledge that. Well, thank you, Evan Osnos, for speaking with me today on the Director's Chair about the President-Elect. Congratulations on your book, Joe Biden, American Dreamer. And we look forward to reading your dispatches in The New Yorker on the new administration. My pleasure. Fun to be with you. That brings the director's chair to an end for 2020. I'd like to thank all those fascinating individuals who've joined me on the director's chair this year, from authors Susan Glasser and Peter Baker, to politicians David Miliband and Rory Stewart, to policymakers such as Fiona Hill and Jake Sullivan. I'd like to thank my colleagues from the Lowy Institute who've helped me with this podcast, including Madeline Neist, Ed McCann, Sophie McFadgen, and our sound engineer, Darcy Milne. Finally, thanks to you, our listeners, for joining me in a year like no other. The Director's Chair will be back in February 2021. Until then, stay safe and well.